Our son, Dave, lives in Manhattan. And whenever we visit him, we, uh, we, we visit him you know, several times. We, we, we keep finding ourselves on Canal Street. Canal Street is in lower Manhattan. It's an east-west uh, street, major street, and it goes through Chinatown. Now, Canal Street's kind of famous for tur- to tourists because that's where you go if you want to uh, find all kinds of luxury goods, designer shoes, uh, perfumes, Rolex watches. You can find pretty much whatever you want to at huge, huge discounts. So for those of you who are drooling about the, you know, the uh, Apple watch that's coming out, that, you know, the $10,000 watch, if you wait a couple of weeks, you should be able to find it in Canal Street for 15 bucks. <clears throat> you just won't know if it works. See, the problem with Canal Street is you got all this stuff, this designer stuff, Rolex watches, at really big discounts, but you don't really know what you've got. You know, some of it's authentic. It just got there kind of devious ways. And some of it is just plain fake. It's a knockoff. It's inauthentic. It's not what it's supposed to be, what it's reported to be, okay? Now, if being able to tell the real from the fake, from the inauthentic, is important when it comes to buying luxury goods, buying Rolex watches, it's even more important when it comes to uh, prayer. It's way more important. This is the ninth week of our series on prayer. And over the last nine weeks, uh, we, 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 we began by looking at the, uh, the request of the disciples in uh, Luke 11. Lord, teach us to pray. So for the last nine weeks, that's what we've been asking Jesus. Jesus, teach us to pray. Not just disciples 2,000 years. Teach us to pray. So we've been talking about prayer, learning about prayer, so that we can actually pray in a way that honors Jesus. And we've been, we've been talking about the fact that prayer is relational. Prayer is commitment. Prayer is surrender. Prayer is uh, reliance upon God. And we've talked about what prayer isn't. Prayer isn't just hypocritical show to make people think you're holy. Prayer isn't just babbling on and on and on because you think you're, you, you're, you need to do that to get God's attention or to wear down his resistance. Prayer isn't selfish or self-absorbed. It doesn't have to be eloquent or poetic or loud. It's not making a case before God for why your prayer should be answered. Prayer at its core is conversation between a child and his or her loving father who is gracious and wise and strong and good. Prayer is coming to our father. It's coming to our father. He's not our boss, he's not our employer, he's our father. And he is unconditionally and unshakably committed to us and to our good. That's at the very core of all of our prayer, the knowledge of who God is and how he relates to us. Today I want to talk about praying in Jesus' name. 
There are a bunch of references in the Bible to that, to, to where we're told to pray in Jesus' name. And told that whatever we ask in Jesus' name will be done. So let me give you a couple of examples. This is from John 14. You did not choose me. I'm sorry. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Or from John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Whatever you ask in my name will be done. That's a huge promise, right? I mean, that's huge. So, what, but think of it. Whatever you ask, so, Father, in Jesus' name, give me a parking space. Father, in Jesus' name, let me win the billion-dollar lottery. Father, in Jesus' name, would you restore hair to my shiny, bald head? You know? Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that I should be expecting that any moment now, hair's going to start growing in my head? Anybody see any? Yeah, yeah. I have prayed and I've heard thousands of prayers in Jesus' name. They, they ended with that phrase, in Jesus' name. Now, some of those prayers were genuinely prayed in Jesus' name, and some were just false. They're fake, they're inauthentic, inauthentic. Using the phrase, in Jesus' name, doesn't automatically make it a prayer that is in Jesus' name. Using the phrase doesn't make the prayer authentic. I'll keep coming back to this. As with Rolex watches, what I'm hoping to do today, what I'm trying to do today is to help us to distinguish between the things that say they're Rolexes or the things that say they are prayers in Jesus' name and the things that just aren't. They just have the name, but they're not really in Jesus' name. I wanted to help us distinguish the authentic from the inauthentic, the real from the fake, okay? So I want to talk first about what the word name means. And there's a, you have an outline in your bulletin what the word name means in the Bible, what the Bible means when it uses the word name in a lot of contexts, when it talks about people, what it means. I want to talk about what Jesus' name means. I want to talk about what inauthentic prayer in Jesus' name is, and then what authentic prayer in the name of Jesus is. Okay? And then I want to close with kind of a checklist, if you will. So... What does the name, the word name mean in the Bible? Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is more desirable than riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. So it's clear that from Proverbs 22, what, what the word name means there is a good reputation. Name in the, the word name in the Bible refers to a person. It doesn't, isn't just a way to identify a person or distinguish one person from another. The word name in the Bible when it refers to persons has to do, it represents the character, their personality, their reputation, and the authority of that person. What type of person he or she is. 
It has to do with the core or the essence of the person. Now, take all that and and think about God. I want to read a passage from Philippians 2 to talk about Jesus' name and what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 6, 6 through 11. 5 through, yeah, 6. So Paul is saying, okay, be like Jesus. Have the same attitude, have the same mind, have the same character of Jesus. Then he describes Jesus. And he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human being he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross now listen to this part therefore god exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying there when he says that Jesus' name is above every name, is that the, the reputation of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the value, the worth of Jesus is above every other being. Because of who he is, because of what he's done, by what he's done on our behalf, he is worthy of the highest, our highest esteem. That's what the name of Jesus means. So, above every other name, it's above every other person's beauty, goodness, above every other person's holiness, purity, all of that. He says, every knee shall bow. It means that Jesus is the one who is above every other power or authority or person on earth. It's a way of saying that he has absolute greatness of power and authority. He says every tongue will acknowledge, every, every tongue will acknowledge on heaven and earth and under the, every tongue will acknowledge his rightful rule. He has the absolute rule absolute right to claim our allegiance and commitment. The absolute right. He is above every other name. He is the most worthy, the most valuable, the most glorious person in the universe. There are a lot, all kinds of implications to that. But one of them is that we do not take Jesus lightly. 
Exodus 27 says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. When Paul says that Jesus has been given the name above every other name, that's a way of saying that Jesus really is God. God the Son. God who took on human flesh, all of human limitation, to reveal the character and purpose and goodness of God to lost and broken humanity so that we might know him and recognize his value and beauty and worth. It's not so that we can take him lightly. It's not so that we can use his name casually. Prayer that misuses or profanes God's name is prayer that uses Jesus' name thoughtlessly. It uses it in vain. So some of us, how often have you heard somebody say grace and they'll say grace and then say, and they'll close by saying in Jesus' name, for example. What does it mean in that context? Too many times it just means, okay, prayer's done, let's eat, right? We just took the most holy name in the universe and used it as a period. Prayer's done, let's eat, right? Or... We're in any kind of gathering and and we don't know how to end the prayer so we kind of just say, okay, in Jesus' name. But we haven't thought about what we just said. Prayer that misuses or profanes God's name is prayer that uses Jesus' name as a kind of a magic kind of thing or a password. It's kind of, we think if we use it that way somehow, God's going to do what we want. Sometimes we misuse God's name when we take God's promises out of context. We claim them in Jesus' name, and then we think God is obligated to respond exactly as we've prayed. In outline, in summary, if you will, anytime we use Jesus' name in a way that doesn't correspond with God's word or his character or his purpose or his will. Anytime we do that, we're misusing, we're profaning Jesus' name. So let me say it again. The value is not in using the phrase. The value is in understanding the reality of the phrase in all that we pray. The value is not in using the phrase in Jesus' name. The value is in understanding the reality of the phrase in all that we pray. When... uh, Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer to his disciples that's recorded in Matthew 6, for example. So you've got the Lord's Prayer. 
At the end of the prayer, you don't see the phrase in Jesus' name. It's not there. But that whole prayer, all of what Jesus says about prayer in, that, in those verses, in nine through, verses 9 through 13, all of what's there, all of that is in Jesus' name because it reflects who he is, it reflects his character, his purpose, his will, and ultimately it's to his glory. That's a prayer in Jesus' name. I want to give you an example, a couple of examples. Now, the examples that we use aren't exactly in the context of prayer. If, if you, can, you can think of them as prayer in a certain subcontext of spiritual warfare. But they both, both of these, in both of these examples, I'm taking from Acts, uh, the book of Acts, the phrase, in Jesus' name, is, is used. So the first one is from Acts 16, verses 16 to 18. The context is that Paul and Silas are in Philippi. Philippi is a Greek city. This is when the, the gospel first came into Europe. A small church has been established there, and Paul and Silas are, are caring for that church, uh, helping that church to grow. And uh, so Paul is, is on his way. Paul and Silas are on, on their way to a time of prayer, and uh, there's this... Uh, female slave girl who has this spirit in her. She's possessed by a spirit uh, that enables her to foretell the future. And uh, she keeps following Paul and Silas around crying out and day after day after day and she's kind of like stalking them and harassing them. And finally Paul gets annoyed and he says In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Okay? Now, flip over a couple of pages to Acts 19. And I'm going to read, uh, actually read from chapter 19, verses 13 and 17. This is one of those, you know, bizarre kinds of things that you see in the Bible stories. But verse 19, uh, verse 11, uh, yeah, I'm losing myself. Verse 13, verse chapter 19, verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So think about this. Why did praying in Jesus' name work for Paul and not for these seven sons of Sceva? It's because for these uh, sons of Sceva, the phrase was just a phrase. 
The phrase itself has no power. For Paul, the phrase represented something very different, very real and powerful. It represented Jesus himself. Paul didn't just have a phrase, he had a relationship with Jesus and he had a commitment to Jesus. This relationship with Jesus was the dominating feature of his life. It directed everything that Paul did, what he thought about, what his goals and ambitions were, what he did, what he said, how he lived, all of that, what he wanted. And because of his relationship with Jesus and his commitment to Jesus, his alignment with Jesus, it empowered his prayers. When Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her, He's standing in for Jesus. He's he's representing Jesus. He's doing what Jesus would do if Jesus were there. He's Jesus' proxy. We don't use that word much, but he's Jesus' proxy. It's like if there's a a policeman who sees a a police person, a police officer who sees a crime taking place, and he or she cries out, stop in the name of the law. That police officer isn't saying that on the basis of his or her own authority. They're saying that on the basis of the state uh, which he or she represents, right? There's authority not in the person, but in the state. The authority in Jesus comes, the authority that's in the phrase in Jesus' name comes not from the person who prays it, but from the Jesus it represents. That's what Paul's doing. He's representing Jesus. And when we represent Jesus, our prayers have power. So, what is authentic prayer then in Jesus' name? Um, I've listed three passages in your bulletin. I'm going to read the passages, but I'm, not, I'm just going to highlight one thing or two things from each one, okay? So from John 14, 12 to 14. Very truly, I tell you, all who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So, key phrase. All who have faith in me. When you need faith in Jesus in order to pray in Jesus' name authentically. And the faith isn't faith in yourself or in your your prayer or in, it's not faith in in having faith, the the quality or or the, amount of your faith. The faith is in Jesus himself. The faith is in Jesus himself that empowers our prayer. And then sort of implied in this passage, it's having faith in Jesus and wanting to see Jesus glorified. The motivation for our prayer is the glory of Jesus. When we are praying out of a relationship with Jesus where we trust him, who he is, what he's done, 
We believe that he really is Lord of the universe. When we pray out of that kind of context and with an earnest desire, a deep desire to see him glorified, there's power in our prayer. That's an authentic prayer. From John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands, remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So what John is saying here is that authentic prayer, prayer that is authentically in Jesus' name is prayer that flows out of loving Jesus as expressed by actually doing what Jesus tells us to do, keeping his commandments. Authentic prayer flows out of loving one another because that's the chief command that Jesus gives us. Love one another. Love each other as I have loved you. Authentic prayer is knowing that we were chosen by God, coming out of that, the relationship, knowing that we were chosen by God, chosen by Jesus, and appointed by Jesus to actually make a difference in the world, to bear fruit. We weren't chosen by Jesus to watch TV with our lives. We were chosen by Jesus to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. So, when we're trying to love Jesus, when we're trying to love one another, when we're trying to do what Jesus wants us to do, when we're trying to make a difference in the world, and our prayers reflect that, there's power in those prayers. That's an authentic prayer. Those are authentic prayers in Jesus' name. And then from 1 John 5. I'm reading verses 13 to uh, 15. I write these to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So again, John is highlighting in his letter here that uh, 
Authentic prayer in Jesus' name flows out of believing who he is, what he's done. And it comes out of a, a desire to do the will of Jesus. And when we have that and we pray, God hears our prayers and he acts on our prayers. Here's the one caveat I'd say to that. God hears all our prayers if we pray, if we pray them out of right motive. And we really, when we're praying out of right motive, we want to do God's will. But sometimes we just are wrong. Sometimes we think something is God's will, but we don't quite get it right. God still hears that prayer. He just doesn't answer it the way we pray it. He answers it, he answers it in a way that intends the spirit in which we pray it, not always the content in which we pray it. Am I making sense here? God answers our prayers in a way that really honors what we really want God to do with our prayers. He wants to bring good out of them. The most good, the most fruit, the greatest um, um, transforming of our character. But he hears our prayers. You can count on the fact that if we come to Jesus, come to God in prayer through Jesus, out of a right faith and right motive, something powerful is happening. Just may not be exactly the way we prayed it. So, if I could just kind of sum all of this up, what I've been talking about. Authentic prayer in Jesus' name is prayer that is based on our relationship with him, that flows out of our faith, Again, not faith in our faith, but faith in Jesus. That is motivated by love for him, for others. That is according to his will. That expresses his authority as his representative. That is for the advance of his kingdom. That has his glory as its ultimate purpose. That's authentic prayer in Jesus' name, whether we use the phrase or not. So... Let me give you kind of a checklist using the Lord's Prayer for authentic prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts with our Father. Do our prayers reflect the fact that God is our Father and that in our brothers and sisters, <clears throat> excuse me, our brothers and sisters in Christ are in fact our brothers and sisters. We are family in the deepest sense. Do our prayers flow out of love for God and for one another? Hallowed be your name. Are our prayers motivated by the desire to see God worship, praise, and honor? You can find these, by the way, in the back of the bulletin thing. The, in the, in the, in, so there's a kind of a sermon outline on one page, the ch- checklist on the other side. Are our prayers motivated by the desire to see God worshiped and praised and honored? Do our prayers bring honor to God's name? If God answered our prayers, would God's name be honored is another way of putting that. Do they truly reflect reflect God's character, his majesty, his beauty, his wisdom, his truth? Your kingdom, your will be done on earth. Do our prayers represent God's purpose? Do, do they align? Do they line up with his will? 
Do they seek to advance God's kingdom in our city and our region and beyond? Give us this day. Do our prayers reflect our daily dependence upon God? Do they reflect our trust and contentment in Him? Do we daily turn to God? Then give us, emphasis on yes, our daily bread. Do our prayers extend beyond our own needs to seek the the good, to seek the meeting of the needs of others as well? Forgive us as we forgive. Do our prayers reflect a soft heart and a repentant spirit before God? Do they reflect an acknowledgement of our need for forgiveness and a trust in God's grace and mercy to forgive? And do our prayers reflect a real desire, an earnest desire that all others be forgiven and have a clean relationship with God? Do they, do they reflect a willingness or at least a desire, a willingness to be willing to forgive those who have hurt us or sinned against, against us in some way? Lead us not into temptation or deliver us from evil. Do our prayers reflect a real desire to be in a right, holy, pure, open, humble, clean relationship with God? Do they replace a willingness to be delivered from our temptations and our addictions and our idols, all the things that are obstacles to our relationship with God, all the things that mess up our relationship with God? And then yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Do our prayers reflect an absolute commitment to God, his kingdom, his power, his glory. Do they reflect a commitment to do whatever it takes for God's kingdom to, be, to expand and for, for God's glory and power to be revealed? Let me go back to the promise. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. A few weeks ago, I read a book called Salvation in the Slums, colon, Evangelical Social Work from 1865 to 1920. It's a very meticulously argued book. The footnotes and cover 122 pages of dense script. But what the the author, Norris Magnuson, does is he shows how um, during the decades after the Civil War into the 1920s, that evangelicals were at the forefront, and we consider ourselves evangelicals, we're at the forefront of ministry and service to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan, to the homeless, to the prisoner, to the immigrant, to the refugee, to the addict, to the sick, They're at the forefront of all of that. They started all kinds of ministry to meet all kinds of needs. They served the least, the last, and the lost. They, all of it in the name of Jesus, they they cared for both people's 
eternal destinies. They, they were evangelists. So, they, so, so through their evangelistic outreach, they care for people's eternal destinies, but they also care for their temporal, their, their life in this world kind of plight through all kinds of ministries, all kinds of political agitation. Magnuson documents case after case after case after case of evil evangelicals in large numbers investing themselves in the plight of the poor, engaging with every area of social need and social justice. It's incredible. They engaged in costly, comprehensive, courageous, coordinated ministry that it just saved the lives of millions both in this world and the next, they changed the landscape of urban America. They did. It's part of our history as evangelicals. Now, my first response to this book as I was reading it was that I was just stunned. I was floored by what I was reading. I was stunned, humbled, awed, amazed, just floored. I was floored because I don't see the same kind of thing happening, at least in our immediate environment today. I don't see people praying the way these folks prayed in Jesus' name. I don't see people living the way these people lived in Jesus' name. I don't see people making the kind of impact they made in Jesus' name that brought glory to God and good to people. But in my second response was, man, this just jazzes me up. I'm encouraged. Because if it happened then, and it did happen, it's meticulously argued. If it happened then, it can happen again, and it can happen here. It can happen here. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because Jesus still hears the prayers of people who pray in his name according to his purpose, to his glory. Because Jesus is powerful to do whatever he wants to do. And he wants to do this. Jesus is concerned for the plight of the world. That's why he came. And while he was here, he didn't tell people, just tell people how to get to heaven. He told them, told them how to live on earth. And he healed, he did miraculous signs, he did incredible things so that people would believe. We keep talking here at Journey about the fact that New England is the least evangelized region in the country. That they're all, I mean, which makes us one of the least evangelized regions ultimately in the world. Why is that? It's because New England has not seen the glory of God revealed by the people who claim to own Jesus' name. But when the glory of God is revealed in power 
and in love and in sacrifice and commitment over time. Then people's hearts and minds and souls are changed, they're shaped, they're brought to life. This is what Jesus is calling us to be and to do as a church. I'm sure of it. So, let's give ourselves to praying authentic prayers in Jesus' name. Let's live our lives for the sake of God's glory and honor, for the good of our school, our workplace, our neighborhood, our community, our city, our region. Let's Let's ask God how he wants us to love and serve our neighbor. How he wants to seek the welfare of this city. Let's pray prayers that make a difference in the world. And let's commit ourselves being part of the answer to those prayers. We are Christ's church. And in Jesus' name, By the authority of Jesus, we are the hope of this region and world. So I'm about to pray. And at the end of my prayer, if my prayer reflects what you want to say to God, what you want to commit to God, then I invite you to stand, lift up your arms and say, yes, Lord Jesus, yes. Okay? So here's my prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are Lord of all the earth and the only one who saves. Jesus, we read and hear the stories of what you have done through your people, through your people who commit themselves to praying and doing whatever it takes to accomplish your purpose and bring honor and glory and fame to your great name. By your grace, Lord Jesus, we commit to doing whatever it takes to fulfill your purpose. We say we want to bring honor and glory and fame to your name. We want to be agents of your love and wholeness in our city and in our world. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer and do whatever is necessary in us and through us to accomplish your purpose and bring great glory to your name. So if you can say yes to this, I invite you to stand right now, raise your arm to say, yes, Lord Jesus, yes. Yes, Lord Jesus, yes. Amen. Amen.